Well, I don't know how you would uh, describe our church. Maybe you've been coming here like Gavin and Kathy for like 15 years, or uh, maybe you've been here for like 15 minutes. Uh, uh, what, what kind of observations would you make about our church? If you were to compare Hope Church to other experiences at church, well, how, would you, how would you describe us. You might notice that uh, I'm not wearing a robe or I'm not wearing a suit and tie and there isn't uh, a stained glass anywhere. And so you, you might think, well, this is more of a contemporary church. It, it, there isn't a whole lot of trappings of, of tradition or that sort of thing. It, it's more contemporary. It seems kind of updated in some way, a shape or form. And then maybe you might listen to the songs that are being sung, or you've heard some of the teaching, or you've participated in a small group, and, uh, and you might come to the impression that, well, this is a, this is a gospel preaching church. This is not a, a church that, 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 that teaches a religion that we need to somehow obey our way up to God, but that teaches the way that, that God has come down to us in Jesus Christ, who died on the cross for our sin. And so, you might describe our church as a contemporary, non-traditional church that emphasizes God's saving work rather than us working to try to be saved. And that would be fair. That would be true. But being a non-traditional church or a contemporary church does not mean that there are no rituals. It does not mean that there are no traditions that we follow and being a church that emphasizes regularly the fact not that we need to reach up to God, but that God has reached down to us in the gospel of Jesus Christ, that doesn't mean that there isn't a code of conduct or a way in which we are to behave. Yes, it's all about a relationship with God and the gospel, but every healthy relationship has rules. <laughs> and there are, un there are unspoken rules uh, in friendship. But there are rules in friendship. It's a relationship, but you guard that relationship. Because you are friends, you want to keep that relationship. And so there are unspoken rules. You, you don't speak unkindly to one another. You're not dishonest to one another. You don't gossip about the other person. Those are, as soon as you break one of those unspoken rules of friendship, the relationship is damaged. And so you have those rules. Marriage has rules. I woke up this morning and gave Lindsay a, a, a kiss. I, no one else gets a kiss this morning. That's a rule. Because my relationship with Lindsay is so special that I have rules that protect the relationship. And so, yes, we're a contemporary church. Yes, we emphasize the gospel and rules follow the importance of a relationship, but that doesn't mean that we don't have traditions or rituals, and it doesn't mean that we don't follow rules. And what was true for us today is also true in Genesis chapter 17 as we dive into this subject that makes uh, half the people here at church squirm a little bit, the subject of a circumcision. And what we're going to see in Genesis chapter 17 is that faith, true faith, always leads to obedience. And that those who believe in God's promises will always follow God's commands. And we follow God's commands through righteous living. Because we have a relationship with God, we follow his rules. We protect that relationship with rules. And we also protect that relationship or symbolize that relationship with signs. 
rituals, righteous living, ritual observance. That's what we're going to see here. God is calling Abram to righteous living, to walk before God and to be blameless. And he's calling Abram to practice circumcision, ritual obedience because of the relationship that he has with God. God here is reinforcing the covenant that he already made in chapter 15. Abram has already believed in God. It has already been counted to him as righteousness. It's really important that we get the sequence right. Abram was not counted righteous after he got circumcised, after he did the ritual. No, he believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness first. And then the sign followed it up. It's really important for us as a church because we're going to witness a a ritual. A couple of people today, they're going to go underwater. They're going to get baptized. This is a a New Testament church ritual. It is a religious rite. But when these two young men get baptized today, this is not the moment in which they become righteous before God or, or in which they get saved. They already were saved. They already had their Genesis 15 moment where they believed the gospel. Now this is their Genesis 17 moment. We're not going to circumcise you. We're just going to baptize you. (laughs) This is their Genesis 17 moment where they are going to do the sign. They're going to do the ritual that confirms the relationship that has already started. So although this passage seems very, very foreign to us, There's a lot of parallels that we can apply to our own lives, especially as it relates to baptism today as we get ready uh, to witness Angelo and Marcus uh, getting baptized. So let me just show you the structure of this passage. It kind of works in two panels. Um, Panel one is the first 14 verses. It has Abraham falling on his face. He gets his name changed to Abraham. Uh, God says he's going to be the father of nations and kings. And then circumcision is commanded. Then the second panel is almost the perfect mirror image. It, It has to do with Sarai. Abraham falls on his face again, but for a very different reason. Her name is changed, just like Abraham's name. She is going to be the mother of nations and kings, just like Abraham is the father of nations and kings. And the circumcision that was commanded in the Abraham panel is then carried out or completed in the Sarai panel. And so I want to share with you, as we work through this structure of the passage, I want to share with you four truths about about God and ritual, and relationship, and rules, and how all of these things come together. Because sometimes we overemphasize the relationship and exclude the rules, but if you don't have rules, you don't have a relationship. And some relationships are so important that you have some sort of ritual or some sort of sign to seal or to symbolize the significance of that relationship. So here's the, the first thing I want you to know about God, is that God relates to his people through covenant making. God relates to his people through covenant making. These kind of promises, these covenant promises that God makes are unique in world religions. 
any of the ancient world religions never describe a, a, a God making these kinds of covenant promises. And we, we looked last week, or a couple of weeks ago at Genesis chapter 15 where the animals were split in two. And the idea, what was expected was that Abram was to walk the bloody path between those animals who were torn apart to say, if I don't follow through on my part of the covenant, may I become like these animals. But Abram never walks through. The, the smoking fire pot and the burning torch pass through. As, and those are symbols of God. God brought the curse of the covenant on himself, which was ultimately fulfilled in Jesus. God relates to his people through covenant making. So now we're in Genesis 17 verse 1 and God is 99 years old. He was 75 when he left the land of Haran. He was 86 when Ishmael was born in chapter 16. And now 13 years have gone by. 13 years of Abram and Sarai thinking that their little plan to help God along was working. And that this was how it was going to be. That Ishmael was going to be the heir. And God must be really thankful that uh, we helped him along because it wasn't working his way. And so we needed to modify God's plan. But God appears to him in verse 1. And he says, I am God Almighty, El Shaddai. He says, walk before me and be blameless that I may make my covenant between me and you and may multiply you greatly. God told Abram that he must walk before God and that he must live in a way that is blameless. Enoch and Noah were described as walking before God. Abram's getting the, the he's, I want you to be like Enoch. I want you to be like Noah. Noah was described in, in uh, Genesis uh, chapter 9 verse 6 as being, or sorry, chapter 6 verse 9 as being blameless. And the way to walk before God and to be uh, blameless, that's what God had laid out. These were the rules. God, God's telling Abram, listen, I've made this covenant. I've established this relationship. Now I'm telling you, in light of that relationship, you need to walk before me. And as you walk before me, the result will be blamelessness. Now this doesn't mean perfection. This doesn't mean that you don't make any mistakes. Because if that were true, uh, what about chapter 16? If that were true, what about chapter uh, 12? They're, they're obviously, Abram has made all kinds of mistakes. That word there, blameless, isn't moral perfection. It describes wholeness or integrity. That your whole life is integrated. It's all connected. It's all whole. That you live your life and walk before God. This is, you know, the theologians talk about the quorum Deo. Living your whole life in front of the face of God. And when you live your whole life as though God were a passenger with you in the car when someone cuts you off on the 401, what you do with your hands or what you do with your mouth at that moment, you understand that you have a passenger with you. And when you're uh, talking uh, with your friends and you want to talk about someone behind their back, you know that you're never saying anything behind God's back and God hears it all and sees it all. You are walking before him. That's how to be blameless. The way to be blameless is to know that God is always watching and that God is always with you. 
That's the way to be blameless, which means wholeness, which means that your whole being goes into every situation. All of Ted, the full Ted, needs to be present here at church. Not not just part of Ted, all of Ted. I got to be blameless. I got to be whole. So all of Ted has to come to church. All of Ted has to be in my, my online presence or my online persona. That needs to present all of Ted. My family needs to get all of Ted. When I'm witnessing to an unbeliever, all of Ted needs to be there. Our world is continually trying to compartmentalize our lives. Where I'll show this group of people this part of me, but this group of people doesn't get to see this part of me. But this group, then it's, and when I'm by myself, then this part comes out. No, no, no. The, The idea of blameless is wholeness. It's integrity. That you are the same person all the time. That you're the same person when no one's watching. You're the same person at church, the same person at work, the same person at home. And you can only get that way when you realize that wherever you go, God is with you. That's why he says, walk before me and be blameless. Then look at Abram's response. It says in verse 3, Abram fell on his face. He's in awe of the presence of God. And he, he gets down low. He bows down. His face is towards the ground. He's flat on the earth in worship and in awe of God. Now remember, the original audience that's reading this is the Hebrew slaves who were rescued from Egypt. They had a moment like this as well. In Leviticus chapter 9, when Aaron and his children were being ordained as priests, it says the glory of the Lord appeared to all the people and fire came out from before the Lord and consumed the burnt offering and the pieces of fat on the altar. And when all the people saw it, they shouted and they fell on their faces. The original audience had had an experience just like Abram where the presence of God was so real, where the glory of God was so overwhelming that the, the, all, they, all they could do was, was to get down on their face. I wonder if you've had an experience like that, where you, you have a, a, a sense of all that God is and his worthiness and his glory and his holiness, and the only response is to recognize that God is so high and exalted and that you want to get to the lowest possible place. God says in verse 5, he says, No longer shall your name be called Abram, but your name shall be called Abraham. And this is where I, I have been looking forward to chapter 17, verse 5. I mean, you can, you can go on to the podcast, I'm sure I've done it plenty of times, to try to teach the book of Genesis and call Abraham Abram over and over and over again, has been so painful. And I'm so thankful right now that I can just call him Abraham. All right? Everyone just say it. Abraham. All right, perfect. Glory to God. Hallelujah. His name's changed. Now, his old name, Abram, meant exalted father. And so his, his name had this like, concept of fatherhood. So when people met him, oh, Abraham, or Abram, exalted father. Where's your kids? You must be a really great dad. And... Remember, Abram and Sarai struggled with infertility. 
And so he always had to explain back. You know, there's always that awkward moment where people were, oh, you must have lots of kids. You must be a great dad. Well, actually, no, I'm just an uncle, and my nephew's a bit of a moron. But anyway. <laughs> so then, now God changes his name. He says, your name shall be Abraham. He says, for I have made you father of a multitude of nations. Abraham means exalted father of a multitude. So God is ratcheting up the name. Not only, Abraham, are you, are you going to be called exalted father, but now you are going to be called exalted father of a multitude. He changes his name. He says in verse 6, I will make you exceedingly fruitful, and I will make you into nations, and kings shall come from you. Nations and kings. Now this will be true both biologically and spiritually. Nations will uh, Ishmael, uh, the Ishmaelites are going to come from his son Ishmael. Israel is going to come, the nation of Israel, through, through the arrival of Isaac and then Jacob and his uh, 12 sons, but also the Midianites and the Kenites and various other nations. After Sarai passes away, Abram has another wife named Keturah, and nations come from Abram. And then the Edomites from Abram's grandson Esau. There, there will be biologically multiple nations, but you can still kind of count them on one, on one hand that will come from him. And kings, kings of these different nations. There will be a king of Edom and a king of the Kenites and a, a king of the Ishmaelites. But there will also be great kings of Israel like King David and King Solomon and Josiah and Hezekiah. But there will also be one ultimate king, the king of kings and the Lord of lords, and his name is Jesus. And he's going to be the offspring of Abraham. And he is going to make it so that Abraham is, in fact, the father of many nations, not just biologically, but spiritually through Christ. Let me show you what I mean. Romans chapter 4 Paul says, Abraham, who is the father of us all, all the nations that are represented in this room, we are all sons and daughters of Abraham, all the nations. He says that he believed against hope that he should become the father of many nations. It happened. It came true. Galatians 3.27 says, there's neither Jew nor Greek. That's talking about nationality. There's neither slave nor free. There's no male, no female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. And if you are Christ's, then you are Abraham's offspring. So he is the father of many nations because we have placed our faith in Jesus, the king, the offspring of Abraham. And so that we are among those nations that he has fathered. Then he says in verse 7, he says, I will establish my covenant between me and you and your offspring after you throughout their generations for an everlasting covenant. Then look what he says. To be God to you and to your offspring after you. God wants to be Abraham's God. This is why I described it as the first point, is that God relates to his people through covenant making. 
The purpose of the covenant was to protect the relationship. The rules about being blameless and the ritual of circumcision is all there to solidify and symbolize the fact that God wants a relationship. He says it right there in verse 7. I'll read it again. To be God to you. He wants to relate to you. He wants to know you. He wants you to know him. God is always after a relationship. And we as human beings get lost in the weeds. We start looking at the trees of ritual or of rules. And we miss the forest of the relationship that God wants us to be in. Tim Keller, uh, uh, who passed away um, uh, several weeks ago, such a, a... faithful a theologian and uh, such a blessing uh, to the church and is now uh, gone to be with the Lord, he describes covenant and relationship in this way. He says, a covenant is a relationship more loving and intimate than a mere legal relationship. It's not a contract, yet more binding and enduring and accountable than a merely personal relationship. Covenant is a stunning blend of law and love. Stunning because it's a personal relationship made more loving and intimate because it is legal. It is this way through voluntary mutual binding promises and vows to be loving and to be faithful no matter what the circumstances are. God says, Abraham, I want to be God to you. I want to be your God. I want you and your offspring to be my people. God ultimately is after relationship. And so don't be thrown by the commands that we follow from the New Testament. Don't be thrown by the way the New Testament stresses that those who place their faith in Jesus Christ must be baptized. Don't be thrown by those things. See them as a means by which the relationship is protected and preserved and pictured. It's vitally important. God is after relationship. Secondly, God requires his people to be set apart by covenant signs. He requires that his people be set apart through covenant signs. This is where he talks about in verse 10. He says, uh, this is my covenant with you which you shall keep between me and your offspring after you, every male among you shall be circumcised. Circum- what, 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 what is circumcised? I'm not going to draw a diagram. Uh, but but circumcised, uh, circ and size. So, so uh, think scission, like an incision is to cut, and a circumcision, circle, is to cut around. That's what circumcision means, to, to cut around the edge of of the foreskin. Forgive me if I faint while I'm up here. (laughs) And this is described in verse 11. Look with me at verse 11. You shall be circumcised in the flesh of your foreskins, and it shall be a sign of the covenant. It doesn't create the covenant. Baptism doesn't create your relationship with God. It's a sign of your relationship with God. Circumcision didn't start the relationship between Abraham and God. That started in Genesis chapter 12. It was formalized in Genesis chapter 15, and now it's being pictured or symbolized in Genesis chapter 17. God uses signs. So he gave Noah the sign of the rainbow when he made a covenant with 
with Noah. Abraham was given the, the, the sign of circumcision. The people of God, the original audience, Israel, they had, they had a separate covenant with God on Mount Sinai when God gave them the Ten Commandments. And their sign was the Sabbath. Every So Noah saw, uh, saw the sign of the rainbow every time after the rain. That was the sign of the covenant. Abraham, uh, in, in more intimate moments, of course, would see the sign of the covenant. And Israel, every time that they rested on the seventh day, saw the sign of the covenant. God speaks to his people through these signs. That's what it would have meant for the original audience. Would have meant something significant for the original author because there's this really bizarre story in Exodus chapter 4 where Moses, who, who wrote Genesis, and Zipporah hadn't circumcised their child yet. And there's this, there's this, uh, there's this crisis and some, it, it's, the text is unclear. It's, someone's dying. It's, it's either Moses or it's, their little bi- or it's their little boy because they weren't circumcised. But this would have always meant something more to the original audience than just what you do with your body. It always pointed to something more. Just like it's outlined here in Genesis chapter 17, the people of Israel in Leviticus chapter 12 were supposed to circumcise their their baby boys on the eighth day, the flesh of his foreskin shall be circumcised. But what was happening with the flesh pointed to something more important. It, it, it was never just about the foreskin. It was always about the heart. Leviticus chapter 26, the original audience would have heard this. This is a prediction of when the people of Israel, even though they hadn't even entered into the promised land, God was already making a plan for when they were going to be exiled from the promised land and going to return. Isn't that amazing? Generations before it ever happened, God said, if they confess their iniquity and the iniquity of their fathers and their treachery that they committed against me and also in walking contrary to me, not walking before God, but walking contrary, breaking the covenant, if their uncircumcised heart is humbled and they make amends for their iniquity, then I will remember my covenant with Jacob and I will remember my covenant with Isaac and my covenant with Abraham. Yes, the book of Leviticus, the original audience, they would have understood circumcision on the eighth day for their little baby boys, but they also would have understood that there's a a circumcision of the heart. There's a woundedness of the heart that's necessary if we're going to relate to God. And that's what circumcision ultimately points to. Deuteronomy chapter 10, God told his people, Now Israel, what does the Lord your God require of you but to fear your God, to walk in all his ways, just like Genesis 17, walk before me, be blameless, Circumcise, therefore, the foreskin of your heart and be no longer stubborn. Have a wounded heart before God. Have a tender and sensitive heart. That is what circumcision is supposed to symbolize. It's not just a physical act. It's a spiritual act. So God commands them, be sensitive to God, have a circumcised heart. And then at the end of Deuteronomy, again, we have another prediction of disobedience and the exile. And look at what God promises here. It says, then the Lord your God will restore your fortunes and have mercy on you. He will gather you again from all the peoples where the Lord your God had scattered you. 
The exile was prophesied in the book of Leviticus and prophesied in the book of Deuteronomy, generations before it ever happened. And then it says, and the Lord your God will circumcise your heart. Deuteronomy begins with this command, you need to do it. You need to make sure you have a sensitive heart. But it ends with God saying, no, 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 you know what? I'm going to do it. This kind of heart change needs to be done by a work of God. So that when your heart is circumcised, you will love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul. You will actually be able to love God. You will actually be able to have that relationship with God that he wants for us. Circumcision always represented something at a heart level. It was always a sign that we belong to God. I wear a, I wear a ring on my, uh, on my ring finger, on my left hand. This is a sign that I belong to Lindsay. No one else gets kissed this morning. Now, someone could wear a ring and kiss anyone they want. It's not just about the ring. It's about my heart. Does my heart truly belong to Lindsay and to Lindsay alone? The, the, the sign points to something in the heart. In the same way, circumcision was ultimately not about a physical thing. It was about a spiritual thing. So God requires his people to... Uh, be set apart by covenant signs. Then thirdly, God accomplishes the impossible to fulfill his covenant promises. He accomplishes the impossible to fulfill his covenant promises. Now we get to this second panel. Remember, uh, we had the first panel where Abraham, if, if, sorry, sorry, go back and forward. There we go. Abraham had fallen on his face. His name has changed. Uh, father of nations and kings, circumcision commanded. Now we're into the second panel. Uh, it's all about uh, Sarai. Her name is going to be changed. Abraham's going to fall on uh, his face. So look with me at verse 15. And God said to Abraham, As for Sarai, your wife, so sh you shall not call her name Sarai, but Sarah. She gets her name changed. Sarai and Sarah, it's, it's really just different. They both mean princess. And so there's no real significance to the name change. It's just like, well, Abraham's name is changing, so we're going to change uh, Sarai's name uh, as well. But then he says in verse 16, I will bless her, and moreover, I will give you a son by her, not by Hagar. I will give you a son by her. I will bless her, and she shall become nations. Kings of peace, peoples shall come from her. The same promises made to Abraham are being made to her. Verse 17, then Abram, Abraham, now I'm still calling him Abram. Now I'm, I have license to call him whatever I want to. Now I'm stuck. Verse 17, then Abraham fell on his face and laughed. So in verse 3, he's falling on his face in reverence before God. Now he's falling on his face, tears in his eyes, slapping his knee. God, you can't be serious. You can't be serious. He falls on his face, but this time for a very different reason. He falls on his face. I don't know if this is... If this is uh, unbelief in sort of a negative way or, or unbelief in kind of like a positive way. Like, God, I can't believe that you're, you're still going to do this. 
Look what he says next. Shall a child be, man to a, shall, shall a child be born to a man who is 100 years old? Shall Sarah, who is 90 years old, bear a child? Here's the reason why I think Abraham was actually laughing in, in real unbelief. Because look what he says at the end of verse 18. Oh, that Ishmael might live before you. God, we already, we already took care of it. How many times, uh, whether it's with your family or with your job or with academics or your health, do you charge ahead with your plan and then kind of at the last minute, you're like, okay, God, please bless this, God. I, I, I need you, God. You're, you're, you're my wingman here. I, I've laid all of this out, and I just really need you to give the power to make my plans work, right? So much of our Christian living goes like that. I have a plan in my mind. I'm going to carry this out. God, I just need you to sort of help me get over the hill here. Oh, God, Ishmael, can't, can't we just do this with Ishmael? That's what we were really hoping, and that's what, you know, the last 13 years, that's what we were expecting, and Ishmael's going to be kind of disappointed himself, and not to mention, I'm kind of disappointed because I have a lot invested in this. God, could you just do it my way? Loved ones, sometimes we just need to take a step back and, and, and step back as far as we think necessary and then step back even further and say, God, is this about me and my plan? Or did I even just stop and ask you, what is your plan for my family or for my job or for my finances or for my relationships or my health or my studies? Am I just asking you to join me in my thing? God's not a wingman. He's not the supporting actor. You're not the main character. You're not supposed to be asking him to help you with your thing. You're supposed to be getting on board with his thing. So Abraham, he's being real honest here, but he, like he, he wants his plan just to be blessed by God. Verse 18, Abraham says, but what about Ishmael? Verse 19, God says, what about no? How about that? How about no? How about we just do it my way, Abraham? You've certainly made things a lot more complicated and difficult in your life. Verse 19, God said, no. But Sarah, your wife, shall bear you a son, and you shall call his name Isaac. Check the footnote in your Bible. God loves irony. Isaac means laughing. You fall on your face laughing at this plan, fine, your kid's going to be named laughing. So that every time you hold that precious little baby in your geriatric arms, <laughs> you're going to laugh to yourself and you're going to laugh at yourself because you had the audacity to laugh at God. He says, I will I'm in verse 19, I will establish my covenant with him as an everlasting covenant for his offspring after him. But God is still so compassionate. Ishmael, you know, just arrives 
And he arrives because of the sin of Abram and Sarai. And there is complication because of the way Hagar reacted. All of the people all around Ishmael are sinning. Ishmael isn't responsible. Ishmael is just kind of thrown into the middle of this. God still has a heart for Ishmael. Verse 20, as for Ishmael, I have heard you. Behold, I have blessed him and I will make him fruitful and multiply him greatly. This is what he promised to Hagar in chapter 16. He shall father 12 princes and I will make him into a great nation. But, verse 21, I will establish my covenant with Isaac, whom Sarah shall bear to you at this time next year. 25 years they've been waiting and God says, okay, now, now it's happening. Now it's happening. 12 years into it, 13 years into it, you, you tried to shortcut the whole process. But now it's going to happen. Now I'm going to do the impossible. Can a man in his 90s have a child? Can a, a woman in her 90s have a child? Yes, because all things are possible with God. So God accomplishes the impossible to fulfill his covenant promises. This child is a miracle baby. A miracle baby who was born post-menopause. A miracle baby who was born post-menopause. All as a picture to the miracle baby who is going to come pre-intercourse. Isaac is a miracle baby. Jesus is a miracle baby. None of them, neither of them had any business being born apart from the power of of God, because God accomplishes the impossible to fulfill his covenant promises. And then lastly, God's promises compel his people to obey his covenant commands. When God makes promises like this, it compels us to want to follow him. We don't, we don't follow the rituals. We don't follow the rules because we think, oh, I have to do this. No, we look at the promises that God has made and said, of course I'm going to do this. The relationship that God has established, then of course, whatever ritual, whatever rule is required for me to grow in this relationship, I will, I will do it. So Abraham takes action. Verse 22, when he had finished talking with him, God went up from Abraham. Then Abraham took Ishmael, his son, and all those born in his house or bought with his money, every male among the men of Abram's house, and he circumcised the flesh of their foreskins that very day as God had said to him. That very day. All the men in his house, starting with 13-year-old Ishmael, I mean, he can't get a teenager to do anything. Think about that conversation. All the men in his household, 13, or, you know, more than 13 years earlier when Abraham had to go rescue his knucklehead nephew Lot, there were 318 men in his household. Now, you, you know, more than a decade and a half later, now that, that, that number is going to be significantly increased. This was not, a, this was not just a, a couple of people. You know, I, I think about these men, right? Where you know, long ago, Lot gets captured. Abraham gathers the men together and says, okay, here's what we're going to do. My, my nephew's been captured. There's, I know, there's, there's four Mesopotamian kings. They've already defeated five kings in six other major cities. They've slaughtered giants. But here's what I think. I think the 300 of us should go and attack them. And, and these 300 men being like, Okay, let's do this. 
Now I picture this conversation where Abraham's like, okay, guys, so you know, okay, so like, you know, like your foreskin and you know how like you, you don't really need it that, like, it's not like that crucial. So here's what, here's the plan, guys. Here's what I'm thinking. Where I'm going to go get a knife and, and you're going to get some, like, I, I think, I think, Genesis 17 would have been more scary for those 300 men than Genesis 14 and battling the four Mesopotamian kings. I don't know. Abraham must have been an incredible leader. But I I love that very day. God wants me to do something. I want to do it that very day. Had the privilege of doing membership conversations with uh, Marcus and Angelo, and so thankful for, uh, for them, having them participate in our first step class, and talking to them about, about baptism, you're going to hear their story, and then just challenging them, together with another church leader, challenging them, listen, God's commanded you to be, you to be baptized, you need to get baptized. Taking some time to pray, to think about it, and then like, when's the next event? Like, sign me up. I'm in. That very day. Let's do this. Let's get it done. God wants something done. Here I am, Lord. That very day. And again, loved ones, it's, it's not about a physical thing. It's not the physical reality of baptism. It's not the physical reality of the removal of foreskin. It's a matter of the heart. And as you trace the theme of circumcision throughout the Bible, it becomes less about the, the flesh and skin, and it becomes more about the person's heart. Uh, Jeremiah, in speaking to the, the people who are rebelling against God, riffing on the book of Deuteronomy, says, circumcise yourselves to the Lord. Remove the foreskin of your hearts, O men of Judah and inhabitants of Jerusalem, lest my wrath go forth like fire because of the evil of your deeds. He says in chapter 9, behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will punish all those who are circumcised merely in the flesh. All the house of Israel are uncircumcised in heart. These people thought that they had the relationship with God because they followed the rituals. That's not it. It's about the relationship. And so Abram was calling these people who were wandering from God and saying, no, circumcise your heart. It's about the heart. And then Jeremiah says, just like Deuteronomy gives the command to circumcise your heart, and then then Deuteronomy says, God will do it. Jeremiah does the same thing. He says in Jeremiah 31, Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah. I will put my law within them, and I will write it on their hearts. He will do the circumcising of their heart, and I will be their God. We will have a relationship with one another. It won't just be about rules. It won't just be about religion. It won't just be about a ritual. It will be about the heart. This is what God wants. And no longer shall each one teach his neighbor and each his brother saying, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me from the least of them to the greatest, declares the Lord. For I will forgive their iniquity and I will remember their sins no more. And how did God do this? 
God brought about the new covenant through his son, Jesus Christ. Through his son, who is the ultimate offspring. There was offspring promised to Abraham, and Jesus is the ultimate offspring. Kings were to come from Abraham, and Jesus is the ultimate king. Abraham was to be the father of nations, and Jesus drew all nations to himself. And Abraham was to have a wound, was to have something cut off from him in order to establish the covenant. And Jesus was wounded and was cut off so that we could be brought into relationship with God. And so the Apostle Paul, thinking about all of these truths and how it all fits together, says in Romans chapter 2, he says, For no one is a Jew who is merely one outwardly, nor is circumcision outward and physical, but a Jew is one inwardly, and circumcision is a matter of the heart by the Spirit. Romans 4.11 Abraham received the sign of circumcision as a seal of the righteousness that he had by faith while he was still uncircumcised. Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness in Genesis 15. He didn't do the work of doing the ritual until Genesis chapter 17. The purpose was to make him the father of all who believed without being circumcised. We have to get the ritual and the relationship in the right order. The ritual doesn't create the relationship. The relationship is what leads to the ritual. The Apostle Paul goes on in, in the book of Galatians saying that in Christ Jesus, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision counts for anything, but only faith working through love. And Paul says, we are the circumcision. Whether your physical foreskin has been removed or not, we are the circumcision who worship by the Spirit of God and glory in Christ Jesus and put no confidence in the flesh. And then lastly, in Colossians chapter 2, Paul says, in him, in Jesus also, you were circumcised. You were circumcised with a circumcision made without hands. By putting off the body of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ. And then look at the connection he made. Having been buried with him in baptism in which you also were raised with him through faith in the powerful working of God who raised him from the dead. So loved ones, we as the church have our own covenant sign. The new covenant sign is baptism. Noah had the rainbow, Abraham had circumcision, Israel had the Sabbath, we have baptism. Baptism. 